0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens.
1: Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on this misty Thursday morning from deep in Germany's far east. In fact, about 100 meters from where the Berlin Wall once stood, if I look out my window. My name's Daniel Freiber. I'm the host of this episode of The Cycling Podcast as we continue our mini-series reviewing the main highs of the 2022 men's road cycling season and today in particular what we have nominated or considered decided was the highest high the ride of the year and we're going to review that with the individual who produced that performance we'll find out who that was is in just a minute but first let's find out who will be accompanying me at least for the first part of the show that is the news roundup in fact he's joining me from soya in the Balearic Islands, where King Louis XIV used to go for his citrus fruits. And the world of cycling now goes for equally vibrant, evocative and exotic commentary on major races. He is Accrington Cricket Club's erstwhile Chin Music producer. A gentleman so fussy about his food <laughs> that he will still, still reject a bruschetta on the basis that the tomatoes are cut at the wrong angle. And I was able to verify this once again just a few days ago. It is the voice of Lancashire Cycling, and of reason, we hope, it is Roberto Hatch.
2: Bon dia, how are we?
1: Good, you were sitting more or less in this seat just a few days ago, weren't you? Um, In Berlin. It was a
2: wonderful... A wonderful little trip to Berlin, although I was not ready for the weather. Deary, man, I don't know how you put up with that all year.
1: I was not ready for you, uh, well, not having changed your dietary preferences and whims and caprices, um, certainly as far as Bruce, <laughs> Bruschetti is confirmed. Just just talk the, the listeners through that. I didn't mention it at the time. So on Saturday we had lunch and um, we ate in a, an Italian hostelry called, I think it was called La Spaghetteria. And they served us up mm. some bruschetta uh, as a little bit of a, a starter, amuse-bouche. And I didn't notice you scraping the tomatoes off there in time-honoured fashion, as you used to do when we lived together. I just wanted less, that's all. There were too many on there. I just wanted a little few, that's all. So it wasn't It wasn't the, the angle of the blade this time. It wasn't time. the angle. I,
2: I let that one go cause it was a nice story, but no, that's not true, I'm afraid.
1: Well, Rob, anyway, how are you? Generally speaking,
2: I'm very well, thanks. I'm very well, thanks. I'm deep into track Champions League season, which is something completely different, obviously. We'll be talking about that, aren't we? Yeah, I look forward to talking about that a little bit because it is something new and obviously um, it's not something that's yet to everybody's taste, certainly traditionalist taste because it's very different. But I'm I'm hoping that we're on a bit of a mission to bring in different people to watch in the sport. And I think the first reviews of people who've been along, who've watched it on the telly have been, have been pretty good. So, yeah, we'll talk about that a little later on.
1: And that is the reason why you were in Berlin, in fact, wasn't it?
2: it was it was round two we had round one we sent
1: you the cycling podcast sent you to berlin because we didn't have a correspondent to go (laughs) to the the champions league track cycling in berlin um in fact that is not strictly true i was supposed to go to the track cycling in berlin last weekend however people have been telling me for years that i was going to catch the track cycling bug and well what do you know just a couple of hours before i was supposed to go to the the velodrome. <laughs> Rob's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's laughing. This is true. This is the equivalent this of the kid true. who's
2: got a little bit of a sniffle
1: and doesn't want to go true. to school. I started to feel slightly unwell after our lunch. In fact, Rob, I tested positive for sorry negative for COVID. I tested negative Thankfully. for COVID, um, and I wasn't able to make it. But fortunately, you were there for us, and you will be delivering your bulletin on the track cycling in just a moment. So, but shall we get to the news roundup? I feel, I, like, better I feel like we could just replay the news roundup for each of the last four weeks because, you know, we visit the same topics every single week. And the first of those, which is becoming very familiar to regular listeners, the latest on the Mark Cavendish beat and beat KTM team watch. Um, as I said, we've been following this story closely. They're not necessarily gaining too much insight beyond what's already known, i.e. Jérôme Pino, the team manager, is still waiting for answers from prospective sponsors ahead of next year. What I can tell you is that I'd speak to Mark Cavendish a few days ago and that he is still very confident that the team will compete next year and that he will be in it. At present, of course, Pinot has not formally announced that Cavendish will be joining the team Although he has admitted that is very much the plan. So really no change there, Rob. I mean, I said a couple of weeks ago that I think I'd I'd exchanged some messages with the Manx missile. And um, he wasn't sure what all the fuss was about in the media. People worried about the the viability of this project. But he thinks that things are going as they should. And um, there will be an announcement soon. That's certainly what he hopes, I think.
2: Well, let's hope for his sake and everybody else's sake on the team, staff members as well, we often forget about because, you know, job security and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, Let's hope that he's right. Uh, (laughs) We're still waiting for news. It is strange. Come on. It is strange that nothing's been announced this late. Um, And I think they they wanted to announce things, didn't they? They had that
1: cancelled press conference, what have you. But yeah, let's hope that everything works out all right. The other big unanswered question of the autumn one, again, that we talk about every single week is where will Nairo Quintana end up? Nairo Man has been speaking to the press in Colombia and he has said that he's already signed a contract for 2023, but that his new team hasn't wanted to announce the deal yet, quite mysteriously. Um, Which team is it? Um. As a what were you going to say, Rob? It's not going to be Medellin, is it? Because no. he came out and
2: said that, uh, rather jokingly, rather disparagingly. I thought actually, I, I that agree. He wasn't with you. going there. It was. This is I, the I continental mean, again, nuances are often lost team. in languages, aren't they, and and things like that. But um, and this wasn't just. I think you and I can proudly state that this wasn't just a dodgy translation into English, was it, uh, in terms of tone and things like that. It did come out rather cocky and rather strange in Spanish, certainly from, if you consider what's happened in the last few months and what have you, uh, it was a bit of a strange one. It wasn't a polite thanks, but no thanks, but it was like... I'm definitely not going to be riding for you sort of thing. This
1: is a continental division team in Colombia that does have some respectable and not-so-respectable riders um, in light of some of their pasts. Um, But it's a team that competes at a different, uh, decent level in Colombia, but Nairo Man is pretty adamant that he won't be joining them. Rather enigmatically, he's also declared that his old team, uh, Movistar, Is or was one of his options, but we do know that Movistar have already stated publicly they have completed their recruitment for 2023. Meanwhile, there have been reports in France indicating that Bahrain victorious will be Quintana's new home. That team definitely does have room in their roster, but they have denied the rumours. So, who's left is the question.
2: I think there's one less, I don't think it was very likely, but Having just uh, read the news headlines this morning, there's certainly one team less. That's Eulo Cometa. Uh, if anybody thought that he might be going to the Spanish, Italian, whatever it might be now, I think it's Italian registered, but with a bit of a Spanish beating heart, isn't it, Eulo Cometa? Uh, they've said that they've completed their roster with the signing of Mattia Baez, um, David Baez, his brother. So um, he's gone Gian- there, so it won't Formally be
1: there. Of Savio's team. Yes, yes, he was with Androni in, uh, in many a Giro d'Italia breakaway in the last two or three years. Rob, now to my favourite disciplines, cyclocross and track racing. Let's start with the cyclocross. <laughs> uh, last weekend, I saw the sixth round of the World Cup Series. It was ridden in Overijse in Belgium. The women's race was run by Puck Petersa.
3: Um, yeah, Puc
1: the, 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 did I say the women's race was won by Peter? Yes, it was. Emphatically ahead of the dominant rider of the Women's World Cup season so far, Femke van Empel. Mm-hmm. In the men's race, the European champion Michael van Turenhout, Rob? Van Turenhout. Van Turenthout. Van Thurenhout was the victor, although by most estimates, the world champion Tom Pidcock was the clear start of the show. Pidcock had a disastrous start with an early mechanical problem, left him languishing 43rd place. He then tore through the field to put himself in a winning position, only to crash and hand the initiative back to Van Thurenhout. Van, sorry, Rob. You're gonna to have to do that. Van Turenhout. Van Turenhout. Van Turenhout. On the penultimate lap, Eli Isabert leads. the So Van Turenhout was the winner. Eli Isabert. Eli Isabert. This is a disastrous. Isabert. Here we go. Here we go. A, he's, he's a bit rubbish at the Belgian pronunciations. <laughs> um, he leads the men's world rankings by one point over Lauren Swick. 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 Well in the women's standings Van Empel still reigns supreme. The next World Cup race is at the weekend in Hoost in the Netherlands and the men's field will include drumroll Mathieu Van der Poel. It'll be Van der Poel's 2022 to 2023 cross debut and the first of several World Cups he'll ride the others being Antwerp, Val di Sole, much, much more comfortable pronouncing the old Italian venues. Um, ga- Gavere. What Gavere, is that? yeah. Is that in Belgium? That's in Belgium, yeah. Zonhoven. Mm-hmm. And Benidorm.
4: <laughs> that
1: one's a little bit easier as <laughs> a little well. A easier, a little bit easier. My Walt grandma va- were quite good at that one. <laughs> Walt van Aert, <laughs> meanwhile, is due to begin his track season at the Antwerp World Race. I think that's the one I went to once um, on December the 4th. Now, um, Rob, I was, I was ribbing, gently ribbing one of our Belgian colleagues um, last night about the fact this is the first football reference of the week. I hope it's going to be the last for the benefit of the listeners who don't enjoy these football references. But here's the Football World Cup. Um, in case you haven't noticed, and Belgium last night were, well, they were outplayed by Canada. They beat Canada, but they were outplayed. And I was gently ribbing our Belgian colleague, uh, Jan-Peter de Vlieger of Het Newsblad, about this. Um, I was telling him that the Belgians should stick to cyclocross. He became quite defensive. Jan-Peter replied, In 1302, Belgium defeated the French oppressor at uh, Gröninger-Kauter, because they got stuck in the mud with their fancy heavy armour. This allowed us light-footed paysans to kick their immobilised asses. Ever since, <laughs> we have the highest esteem for mud. Wout van Aert, um, I, I, I had sent him a picture of Wout van Aert sliding down a very muddy hill. He said, Wout van Aert is sliding down on his back. or Wout van Aert sliding down his back is an ode to Flemish liberation.
2: Thanks, JP. You've just written my next introduction on the telly for next time I commentate on the cyclocross. Did That's brilliant. Did you know brilliant.
1: about this? Did you know about the... No, I had no idea. No. I, I spent know.
2: a lot of time in Belgium, but I had no idea.
1: I think it might be, to quote the immortal words, words of François Tommaso, bullshit, but it's a nice <laughs> story. Rob, track cycling. Um, well, the first instalment, track cycling this week, it was Ilio kaiser's farewell at the Gent 6, but he didn't manage to win for an eighth time. Um, he was given a, a lovely send-off, a guard of honour, um, at the end of the Ghent 6. He said, everything began here for me. I was dreaming of riding the six days as a little kid while sitting here and watching the riders from the stands. It's been an unbelievable journey and I'm grateful for everything. I want to thank everybody, my wife, children, my family, Patrick Lefevre, and all the people who always stood close to me. I said Kaiser didn't win. In fact, he and Jasper de Beuist finished third. And the champions, the victors, the kings of the Kupka this year were were Lindsay de Wilder and Robert Hees. Is that right? Uh, Robert Hees, yeah. Robert Hees, sorry. Rob, finally, it's Mm. your turn to tell us about what happened in Berlin, apart from um, the things we know about the Bruschetta, the Blizzard, and all of that. What happened in the velodrome?
2: Well, I had to fight my way through the blizzard to get to the velodrome after I'd left you after that very, very cold lunch. Um, and what happened in the velodrome, it was another brilliant night. So, the track Champions League, for those of you who don't know, split into five different rounds. Okay, so we start in Mallorca. It's a nice home event for me, actually. I actually, got the bus to work. It's a, a rarity given what's happened and the way that. Uh, We've got the pro cycling circus going around the world when we do get to go to races. Uh, so we had that the other week in Mallorca and obviously 20 points for each race. There's two races in the sprint tonight. There's two races in the endurance event tonight, And of course, if you have the most points, rather like in team sports, you're top of the league. If you're top of the league, you get to wear the leader's jersey. The race goes from Mallorca to Berlin for round two. We've got... Saint-Quentin or Paris, um, the French would get upset if we call it Paris, but Saint-Quentin on Yvelines, uh, just outside of the French capital, coming up this weekend and then two nights in London to finish off the series. Again, most points at the end wins the Champions League. If you're top of the league, you take the jersey through what they call the Champions Gate, a big arch in the centre of the track in London. Um, this week, round two, uh, Mark Stewart was leading the men's endurance category. Um, he was in the leader's jersey and said that he had a bit of target on his back first experience racing in this tournament and ollywood also a british rider came and won the scratch race dylan Bibbick recovered from a crash he's the 19 year old world scratch champion from canada recovered from a crash in the scratch then won the elimination race and in terms of the overall it, just showed that consistency pays because another Canadian, Matthias Guillemet, pulled on the leader's jersey. He's top of the Men's Endurance Champions League. For the women, Katie Archibald bounced back. It was a 40-point night for Katie Archibald. She won both scratch and elimination, but not enough to take it at the top of the league. Is that like a it 6 was the cons- in football? It is, I guess. It is. <laughs> Basically, she did everything she could on the night. She hit all the, uh, the points up, and she is Tape in Maria. second place in the league. It exactly win. Exactly, um, top of the league though, and in the endurance lead is Jennifer Valente from the United States. She keeps the jersey stays top of the league after round one. For the sprints, there was disappointment for the German crowd, and it was a shame because they turned up in their numbers in this wonderful, relatively new velodrome. Actually, in in Germany, I think it's only five six years old now. Uh, the Berlin Velodrome, it's sort of all completely redone. I think they call it the UFO because it's a bit of a um, bit of a spaceship sort of. I would say, a big sort of round structure that's actually built underground. You have to go down the steps, down the lifts and walk through the maze to get into the track. But it's a wonderful arena. But the crowd who turned up were disappointed because Leif Friedrich, who's the world champion in the Kieran, was ill. She finished last in her uh, heat, then gave a sort of tearful speech to the crowd saying that she couldn't compete anymore. And she went home to recover. We wish her the best. On the track, though, Mathilde Gros, the young French woman who's been a big built up star for the last few years, finally broke through this year and won the rainbow jersey in, in the sprint. She looked absolutely Every little bit the world champion. She won her sprint. But in the Kieran, it was Marta Bayona, the Colombian, who won that. And that was enough to take her to the top of the league. So we've got a Colombian in the lead of the women's sprint league. And to wrap up, Harry Lavresen, still in the leader's jersey. But for the second week running, he was beaten in the sprint final by Australia's Matthew Richardson. Matthew Richardson, born in Great Britain, was a gymnast. And now is a track sprinter and a very fast one at that. So that's a, a really interesting rivalry
1: developing, of course, with the Paris Olympics, just less than two years away. Well, I didn't need to go, did I, Rob? I feel as though I've seen, well, I've heard more there than I would have seen at the Velodrome. I mean, that was extraordinary.
2: Just giving you monies money's
1: worth, mate. Every pedal stroke recounted in glorious detail there. Thank you, Rob. Uh, Rob. Finally, a bit of sad news, which came a little too late to be included in last week's episode. The long crusading microbiologist and nemesis of doping athletes, Professor Werner Franke, died last Tuesday at the age of 82. Franke and his wife, Brigitte Berendonk made one of the biggest contributions of anyone ever to anti-doping by lifting the lid uh, on and pursuing the perpetrators of East Germany's state-funded doping program, um, what was called at the time State Planning 14.25. Werner Franke was also instrumental in pressuring the German government to finally compensate the thousands, in fact probably tens of thousands, of victims of that system. Later, he made headlines for his passionate, outspoken, and litigious pursuit of the truth about Jan Ulrich's cycling career. Um, I indeed met Professor Franke on a couple of occasions while researching my biography of Jan Ulrich, and we can hear a short clip from one of those meetings now.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. So and he has given the most detailed uh, yeah, description how it was arranged, and you know which hotel. they were. Yeah. On the Tour de France, they went over the border. To Karlsruhe, which is in here in Germany, you know, mm. went there, hotel room, so, um, bed. They got reinfused, uh, uh, prepared blood, you know, so, mm. and were brought,
3: brought back to the mm. to the tours. So, mm. Oh, in Freiburg, it is the yeah. same thing.
1: Well, Rob, Werner Franke was a real titan of anti-doping in the world. I mean, some of, as I said, there what he discovered about the East German doping system together with his wife. I mean, it was one of the greatest achievements ever in. In anti-doping, a guy I sometimes had slightly mixed feelings about because um, he he pursued Jan Ulrich in particular with a vehemence and a sort of bloodlust, which sometimes made me feel a little bit queasy. Um, and sometimes I felt the kind of compassion piece was maybe missing from some of what he was doing, certainly vis-a-vis Jan Ulrich. Uh, but it really he was a he was a living legacy of this sort of cultural phenomenon in Germany which I talk about quite a lot in my biography of Jan Ulrich this this obsessive kind of accountability or what the Germans call the Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which is a a word that has been coined to sort of or to sum up the, the process and attitude of of accountability and processing the well the evils of the Nazi regime and And really the the vow that's been taken by the the German people not to let anything like that happen again. And this sort of leaked very much into anti-doping and Werner Franke was the embodiment of this. And he was a huge reason why Germany was a lot more rigorous in all matters anti-doping, not just the East German anti-doping system, but what came after, than a lot of other places. So um, certainly he'll be sadly missed in the anti-doping community. Rob, it's time for the main event, almost time for the main event of this week's podcast. Um, I said this was the latest in our series of reviews of 2022. Today, we're going to be talking about the ride of the year, a difficult one to to make a decision about a difficult one to pin down lots of contenders I mean we had we sort of teased this episode on Twitter a couple of days ago and a lot of people guessed what the ride of the year would be and um, some of the sort of nominees Tadej Strade Bianca, big solo um, break that was this year <laughs> Binyam Gemay, uh, gent Vevelgem, Tom Pidcock's incredible descent of the Col du Galibier and victory at Alpes d'Huez. Jonas Vingegaard, well, his whole Tour de France, but of course, in particular, the stage of the Col du uh, Granon. Remco, Evenepoel at, at Liège-Bastogne-Liège, another solo raid. Remco at the Worlds, Remco at the Vuelta, um, going way back to the start of the year, uh, Matei Mohoric at Milan-San I mean, who would you have gone for? I think I just alluded to the fact
2: that I'd, I'd make a, I'd have a really difficult time picking because we've got so much racing and, and we cover it all now. It's absolutely brilliant, but it all sort of blends into one long season that seems to have lasted three years. I have trouble remembering, in fact, that Bogacá did win Strade Bianche this year. Um at it seems a lifetime ago as well when we're all talking about the the dropper seat post and all that sort of stuff um, you know there's Dylan van at Pagny Roubaix as well that's a tremendous ride on what was a, a really entertaining race as it often is you can go to any of Remco Evenepoel's wonderful wins but I think the one that, that sticks out in my mind not because not because it was necessarily the best but because of what it meant at the time I have to go back to, to Binyam Guillem I think um, and then you know there was a second part to that chapter wasn't it the Giro d'Italia when he won that stage as well and beating Mathieu Van as well which is a, a really special way to win there was the unfortunate incident with the Prosecco Cork afterwards which thankfully all is well that ends well there because I know that a lot of us were quite worried at the time given the, the lack of a clear medical report on that that was telling us anything good so I'd say Binyam from for a lot of special reasons um, and obviously because you and I are sat here talking it's always going to be a day that I remember personally from a very sad point of view because it's the last time that um, I was lucky enough to be with our good mate Richard Moore Um, And I know that he was absolutely delighted to have witnessed what he just witnessed on that day. We're all very excited at at Binyam Giamai breaking through the barrier, becoming the first black African to win a cobbled classic, to win one of cycling's big races in the north. He then did it at a Grand Tour as well. And we've all seen the reaction since he's been back in Eritrea. And the fact that the Belgian press had already built him up before this happened. I think we forget this. They were talking already before that win about the new Tom Bonin. They were very excited about him. So it's not just he's withstood the pressure of his own nation and, you know, a cycling mad country. I guess press-wise, it it will be difficult for for those guys if they then don't perform back in Eritrea. But the Belgians have built him up as well. And we all know what the circus is like. You've been to the classics. You talked about um, our mate, J.P., He's just one of many journalists from his own newspaper who uh, attend the classics every year. They're forced to churn out pages and pages and pages of stuff. And Binyam Gamai's performance that day, I think, will
1: always stand out as the one to look back on this season. Well, Rob, a worthy winner he would have been, certainly um, for symbolic reasons, as you've talked about. But we haven't gone for Binyam Gamai. We have gone. We have, we have aped, we have echoed something that Remco Avenipal, um said sort of exclaimed when he came over, when he crossed the finish line in the World Time Trial Championships in Wollongong. Um, well, we, we've echoed what will be some people's reaction. Um, you'll remember that Remco Evenepoel heard that Tobias Foss, the Norwegian rider, was the new World Time Trial champion. Um, he almost sort of spit out his gum shield, didn't he? Um, couldn't believe that Tobias Foss had won the World Time Trial Championships. And I've, well, we've chosen... This particular ride because of all of the ones I mentioned this was the one where we felt the protagonist the rider had really bottled lightning um, it was against all odds everything surely must have been perfect that day um, he upset the form book he upset a fantastic cast of time trialists that were assembled at the Worlds this year that isn't always the case and it was a victory that really came from nowhere and well, we could only imagine that there was a there was a really interesting, intriguing prelude to this performance, um, which probably stretched back deep into the twenty twenty two season, or back to early in the twenty twenty two season, when we know that Tobias Foss was struggling a bit. We spoke to him at the Giro d'Italia and he was obviously not having a very good time and he turned things around in time for the World Championships. Um, He's a very engaging young man. We heard from our colleague Magnus Ora of TV2 in Norway a few weeks ago after FOSS had won the World Championships, in fact. Um, A little bit more about FOSS... I think Magnus called him the nicest guy in cycling. Well, we'll find out, won't we, in in a minute. Um, Tobias is going to tell us all about that fantastic day in Wollongong. But he's 25 years old. He won the Tour de l'Avenir in 2019, came into professional cycling with a, a lot of sort of hype surrounding him, particularly in Scandinavia. Um, he is, a uh, very fine time trial. He'd finished ninth in the Giro d'Italia in 2021. And yeah, as we said, he came into this year, um, with, with pretty high hopes that looked as though they were not going to be fulfilled. Rob, you were commentating that day. Um, I, I was commentating that day
2: and, um, I, again, I was surprised. I was shocked. So was Michael Hutchinson, who was commentating with me as well, who's obviously a, a tremendous expert on all things. Aero, time trialing against the clock. Um, huge, huge present in, in, in that presence in that world. Tobias Foss, we didn't expect him to win, did we? Let's be honest. It was a Foss fairy tale down under. Like you say, he had won the Tour de l'Avenir, He'd been a solid rider. And we knew he was sort of coming into form on the road anyway. Because if if you think back to, was it two weeks before the Canadian races? I was commentating both of those. And I remember particularly the race in, uh, it was the the first one, Quebec. And he rode on the front of the bunch for a long, long time. And and at the time we were wondering, what's this guy doing? You know, he's the sort of team leader. And he was really playing domestique. um, And he played the role wonderfully well. And we thought, well, I wonder if he's decided to take a step back and become a sort of super domestic, take the leader's pressure off him. Don't think that was the case. He was just getting the engine
1: warm, wasn't he? Because he rolled fantastically over there. Well, Rob, without too much further ado, shall we hear the story of that fantastic day in Australia for Tobias Foss? How indeed Tobias Foss, well, he paid the Foss to be the boss. I think we're going to hear from, we're going to have a short commercial interlude first. Then we're going to hear from Tobias Foster. And we're also going to hear a little bit, well, a little bit from his coach, Tim Heemskirk. Well, he's one of the performance coaches at Jumbo Visma. We're going to hear some bits of commentary from the day itself from you, Rob. Well, including from you, not only. They are from GCN Neurosport, But Rob, I'm going to say thank you um, for your impeccable Um, company on this news round, and particularly, particularly your input on the track champions league cycling. What was it called? Champions league of track cycling. UCI track champions league, Daniel. There we go. It's give it its official name. If we want to be pedantic, Rob, (laughs) thank you very much. Thank you.
4: The cycling podcast powered by super sapiens, energy
0: management for committed athletes and coaches.
4: And now you can wear
0: the SuperSapiens energy band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport biosensor. The SuperSapiens energy band is available at supersapiens.com for 159 euros.
4: Thank you very much to SuperSapiens, our title sponsors. Now if you've signed up to the mailing list at supersapiens.com, you may already know that the first 250 people to buy the Abbott LibraSense Sport Biosensors from supersapiens.com have been offered access to the 10-week off-season fueling plan. They have to be quick because it's only open to the first 250, but those 250 people will get training plans, recorded videos, and three live group calls with the Supersapiens coaches to help them tailor their fueling plans for success. Go to Supersapiens.com and sign up for the email updates to receive a heads up on these sort of offers in the future. Before I hand back to Daniel, some big news, some very exciting news from our partners and friends at MAP. The cycling podcast dot jerseys are back in stock at map.cc. They sold very quickly first time round, they're back in stock now together with the cycling podcast socks caps and water bottles the whole range is available as i speak uh, they were very popular first time round, as i say so if you were thinking of getting a jersey i suggest have a look at the website map.cc and make sure you don't miss out now you wouldn't expect me to get caught up in the hysteria of black friday not really my kind of thing but i couldn't help but notice there are some chunky discounts on the map.cc website The couple of things that really caught my eye, the Emblem Pro Hex jersey, that's the one with the five distinctive stripes across the chest, as well as my personal favorite, the Evade Pro Base jersey, they're included in the Black Friday sale. A range of other jerseys and casual clothes I noticed t-shirts and accessories also available with some big discounts at map.cc I should just point out that the cycling podcast products are not included in the black friday sale but uh, there are some bargains to be had if you're quick
0: underway. Let's get back
2: to the time check Tobias Foss looking good. Oh, he's looking very good. He might be the quickest so far. Sheffield with 854.7. Tobias Foss of Norway. Look at that. This is an all-out effort to the line. Foss flying. Foss is the fastest.
1: Well, Tobias, how are you, first of all?
0: Yeah, all good. All good. Looking very relaxed,
1: uh, very rested.
0: Yeah, it's been a busy day here, so uh, trying to relax when, when I got time, and yeah, also coming straight from the holidays, it's uh, yeah, it's a good mindset you're, you're having, and yeah, kind of keeping that chill vibe uh, going into the first week of the season. So, you're at the Yumbo Visma service course at the moment. What's going on in these days? Yeah, so I came on Monday, today's um, Wednesday. Wednesday so uh yeah yesterday we had a physical test just to check uh, our lungs and our hearts and just to check if if everything is okay uh and then uh today we had like the content day to to try to avoid too much around the camps in December and January and then tomorrow we have like a team day where we do activities to to get to know people in the team also around the staff like this company is so big now that when I also got here, there, there's so many people I've never heard about and never seen. Mm. So, uh, also looking forward to that to to get to know the whole uh, whole group of, of staff. Actually,
1: have you been to the service course before?
0: Yeah, I was yeah. there also quite early after they opened uh, the new one uh, last year. It's like an IKEA, uh, I... isn't it? It's enormous. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's gigantic. So it's uh, but it's also really really nice. So can, I can really imagine for the for the guys from Holland uh, that it's a super nice place to to have your offices and, and go to work and you know like if even if you were working in offices you still will see the mechanics and the one years mm. and and also the 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 higher staff so it's uh, no it's, it's a really cool working place in my eyes. Mm.
1: So Tobias we've summoned you here today because you your ride at the world championships is our ride of the year better than Pogacar, Strade Bianca better than there were various nominations Binyam Gamay, Gent Vevigam, Tom Pidcock, Abduez. Jonas Vingegaard obviously at the Tour de France Remco at the World's at the Vuelta I mean how does where where do you think you rank in that list <laughs> I don't know to me
0: it's uh I don't know if I agree but it's uh yeah I know for sure it was a shock to to a lot of people and especially to myself as well um uh, and also I feel like my 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 first race of the season was was going in the right direction but but after that that was really anonymous and and yeah, I really didn't show it, basically anything. So uh, it was, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I guess it came out of the blue for everyone. And uh, I guess that's also why why you guys feel like it was the the race of the year, since it was uh, a big surprise, I guess.
1: So you said you hadn't done much before the World Championships last year. I wanted to go back, first of all, to well, not to the start of the season, but to copy Bartali, which... You, well, this was kind of maybe where the story started in the sense that it was where things started to go wrong for your 2022 season, wasn't it? I think mean, you got through the first stage, all right, after a good Algarve, pretty good start to the season at Algarve. And then in the second stage, you had a nasty crash, which probably a lot of people didn't realise at the time. and um, It passed pretty much unnoticed. But tell us about the crash
0: yeah so uh what happened there really was that uh it was i I talked with kuhn baumann after uh after the stage as well and he said like he he really knew the corner so it's uh a well-known corner i didn't know about it but uh it was sunny nice weather 20 degrees and uh i came there i see two guys in front of me like 10 positions in front of me just completely lose their uh their wheels or the control of the wheels uh and slip and then I come behind them and I had no chance and everything is dry. And yeah, it was really strange, but, uh, it was also like, you could see the asphalt was, was almost like a mirror. So it was mm. really, really fine. And I just hit the corner, uh, lost both my wheels, uh, and it all happened so fast, so I couldn't react in time. So I was, yeah, my head went, uh, went really hard into the ground, uh, ended up with like a big blue eye and, um. Yeah, checked me, checked me for a concussion, but they didn't find anything at the moment. But uh, for sure, the the week after was quite uh, harsh and um, and grim. So probably hit the hard the head. Like I never hit my head that hard yeah. uh, as I did there. So uh, for sure, yeah, it had some impact. In the head.
1: And you were in the middle of your Giro D'Italia preparation then. I mean, you'd finished ninth the previous year, and you had this training camp. Planned in Tenerife, didn't you? I think you were going to go for quite a long time. Was it two or three weeks, probably, with Tom Dumoulin?
0: Yeah, the plan was to go uh, go three weeks, and and I was there basically. In, in the end, I was there uh, around two and a half weeks. So uh yeah, what it ended up being there was that uh, I went there, like yeah, after the crash in Copia, had like about an, a week, quite easy, uh, to also gather some some energy for the camp, and uh, I went there. Uh, feeling good in the beginning like things were going well but yeah I was also like just breaking my body more and more down so at one point I was just completely smashed and uh and uh instead of you know like when you're starting to get in good shape or even in normal shape you can train really hard and Mm. and you have a good sleep and then you actually feel more recovered the, the next day but I just woke up more and more smashed every morning so in the end, it was also not pleasant to be on. Like I had to skip down the training load a bit, and uh, then the top of Tenerife is not the nicest place to be. So I ended up going home about half a week, a week early. That was really like the the last uh, our last try to to save everything to to say okay, go home, rest well, mm. uh, try to give the body some energy, and uh, for all we knew knew it it could work out fine, but. Uh, Unfortunately, didn't.
1: Do you think, and does the team think now that the crash in Copia Barteria had something to do with that, to do with your yeah.
0: difficulties? Like, uh, I haven't talked too much about it with the team about it, but uh, for, for myself, all I felt was that my body was just under too much stress. And basically, when you're training hard for a race, mm. you're just giving your body a high load of stress uh, to try to, to break it down to become stronger. Uh, and I just felt like there was something something they're taking too much energy from the body uh so when you're then training hard on top of that uh and on a training load that you normally will be able to absorb and, and recover from then yeah uh you just got, got too much and you know we, we're really balancing on a super thin edge when we're training hard for a for a big goal so yeah this time it was just too much actually
1: when you say you're on a super thin edge, just talk a little bit more about that. Um, what you mean by that, yeah.
0: Yeah, like um, our training is really like we're pushing ourselves to the limit. Uh, so our recovery has to be good. Our sleep has to be good or as good as possible. Uh, Preferably perfect. Yeah. Uh, and our nutrition has to be that way. Uh, like everything has to be uh perfect or as Mm. good as you can Uh, and if you have some kind of issues if it's three or four nights without the amount of sleep you need or if you pick up some kind of virus or bacteria uh, or in this case if if your body is dealing with some kind of stress uh, that is not measured in power or heart or heart rate or whatever uh it just gets too much like it's a complete package and normally you would just like that package to be the training load but in this case, it was also like more on top of it that just made the glass uh, flow over. So, uh, yeah, in the end, it was super good learning uh, and I got to know my body better. But mm. uh, for sure, it wasn't fun at that time. How are you doing? How's your Giro going so far? <laughs> uh, all in all, I think everything is good. But uh, for sure, we, we hope for something different. And uh, we hope, the, or I, I and the team also hope we could be... Uh, it could be up there in the GC, but uh, but in the end, uh, yeah, with, all, with the preparation and stuff not going uh, fully as planned, and uh, yeah, this was probably the most realistic outcome. But uh, yeah, we're still smiling, and the sun is shining. So, and also every day is a new opportunity. So. Uh,
1: And then you do go to the Giro. I mean, I remember speaking to people in the team and they said that, well, both Tom and Tobias will probably go well in the first time trial, which you did. I think you were, were you sixth in the time trial or you were top 10? But maybe they said, maybe both of them will start to struggle a little bit more afterwards because I don't think the camp had gone that well for Tom either. And then you get to Blockhouse in particular. And I spoke to you at the Giro later on. And you gave Blockhouse as an example of, well, a day when you had really, really suffered. And, well, it was pretty clear then that the dream of repeating the previous day, uh, sorry, the previous year's performance was was over. It had shattered. Just talk to me the ex- about the experience of that day, um, Blockhouse in particular, and what you felt that day.
0: Yeah, I, I always find it hard, you know, when, when you're not... Uh... When you're not uh, delivering on the on the way you want or like on, on the level you want, like um, also analyzing, maybe overthinking a bit like, OK, is this uh, me not wanting this enough or is it like mentally or whatever? But I can from deep inside my heart say that I, I gave my all that day and it was just complete suffer. And that was also what I felt during the Giro that um, uh, my base was not good enough because of the, the previous two months. and. Um, so I did well in the time shell because uh yeah to to do one effort of high power I I had the shape for but to repeat it uh three four five times um I didn't have the the base for so and also with with the recovering like one of my signs that I'm in really good shape is that I, I recover recover quickly and that was not the case in the Giro uh it still was something bothering my body um so days like that it's not fun at all and you start to doubt yourself like am i strong enough mentally uh what is going on uh do i actually have something to do here because it does feel completely hopeless uh but uh but in the end i have good teams uh, teammates around me and, and good leaders and um yeah even though that was a quite dark day then uh we managed to, to turn our focus quite quickly and uh and also In the end, it was not too bad of a Grand Tour and I got through it and was already from that day on looking forward to try to achieve more in the Giro than just the GC.
1: I know, Tobias, I was going to get to this later, but I know that in 2018 you had a a few months off or a couple of months, a bit of a pause when I think you were even thinking about or considering whether you wanted to pursue this journey as a cyclist. Um, I mean... Talk to me a little bit about that, and how maybe that experience and having emerged from that experience helps you in situations like the situation that you encountered at the Jira.
0: Yeah, so I think that that situation started basically, yeah, because I was just a bit unsure if this was the the way I wanted to live my life and 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 the career I wanted for my life. Um, you know, it takes up so much time of 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 your day and. new weeks and new years that uh, you really need to feel it's a big reward uh, putting down all the hard work and uh, yeah I was just considering for myself if it was giving me enough reward actually Um, because of going through that process then for sure I have had challenges times after but I never questioned actually if this is something I want to do did you get some help
1: at that time? um did you seek people's advice or was it something that you worked out yourself?
0: yeah i got a back then i was in uh in Team Uno X. um and uh yeah i got a good help from uh from a mental coach there uh, to process my own thoughts and yeah basically just come to a conclusion together uh and uh yeah. Like as I said back then, I made a decision that this is what I want to do, and this is my life and for sure it it can change and uh yeah, a career is wrong, so you never know what will happen. but yeah, since then it's never been a question actually. so um yeah um for sure it was yeah, I've been through some some rough stuff but uh but in the end uh yeah, I think you just come stronger out of it and in the end you just get to know your own body and mind a lot better.
1: Was there an alternative back then that was was there a gravitational pull from something else that was making you well consider that um that that maybe you didn't want to be a cyclist was there i don't know going to university or seeing what your friends were doing was there something in particular that you had already envisaged as a different path
0: yeah no not really but but it was more like going the the normal path like mm. like all my friends and family did um and I really felt like, okay, if I want to be a cyclist from Norway, I can't live in Norway. Uh, the winter there are, are too brutal. So in
1: Lillehammer, uh, in particular, where you live, is pretty. I was speaking to a Norwegian colleague earlier, and I said, "Tim, how is Lillehammer viewed by even by Norwegians?" He said, "It's it's bleak. It's very
0: cold. It's a long way from the sea. It's a long way from most things." Exactly. It's a it's a small town. You can get down to minus twenty five ish in in the winter in in the worst week. So. It's not the place to ride your bike. Uh, so I felt like I had to go uh, to Spain or like, uh, yeah, outside Norway. And uh, I think it was just that decision. Okay, do I want to move there alone? And I think also I spent already a winter kind of alone there living with a mate uh, in a flat there in, in Girona. Um, and I you know like for sure it's a nice life, but uh, also moving away from all their family and friends is... Uh, It's a challenge. so I guess it was just um, yeah. I had to consider if that was something I wanted to do and if that was right for for myself. The first half of the season, well, it ends with,
1: I guess, a success when you win the Norwegian National Time Trial Championship, but then you have to turn your thoughts to the second half of the season. Now, was the World Time Trial Championship
0: already a goal at that point, a big goal? Yeah, So so after the Giro, the plan was the Norwegian Championship and and I have to say like after the Giro, I was quite tired, but then I had like uh, a week or at least five days with with not much riding and then started to ride a little bit and uh, already then felt that my body was taking big steps, just getting like a couple of days off the bike. The national championships went really well and I started to feel strong again, like normally like myself. And then the focus was the Vuelta uh to try to to go there uh, help the team and also be uh, as good as I can for myself um but then again in the same preparation in back home in Andorra then uh, the same things happened that uh yeah I was just breaking myself more and more down and, and really couldn't recover from from any sessions so yeah in in the end there we also uh, pulled a break uh, maybe a bit earlier than we did before uh, the Giro just of experience uh and then I had uh, then I went to Holland. We did a lot of checks, like medical checks, um, to check uh if, if we could find something. Ended up having two, three weeks of um uh, of none to a little bit of training. And then from there we started to train and, and that was also where I saw that okay, it's five, six weeks until the, the world championship. I really want to go for this and, and make this my last blow my last goal for the season. And yeah, when you when you don't have more weeks than five, six, then you know you can always get in good shape for a time trial. Mm. Uh, it's more different for a road race or uh, especially a stage race because then you need more base. But for a time trial, it was basically perfect. So we went really specifically into it, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was also one of the reasons why it went so well. I was super, super motivated for it. So yeah.
1: So so before we talk about the things that went well very well i'm um, just going back to what you said about the preparation for the Vuelta i mean it's one of the big conclusions from this year with you and your coaches that you and altitude well that that relationship needs to be reevaluated you, there's something that's not been working this year yeah uh
0: I like to keep it a bit simple like I know that altitude have worked really well for me in the past so in my head I know it's working but it's so I think it's so important for me especially I, I don't know if it's the same for others but for me at least it's so important that I go into an altitude camp in balance because if I go in with a small injury or like in this case probably a, a quite bad uh concussion then then the com- complete stress load to my body is 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 easily too high so uh at that moment i was also living on altitude in andorra uh so i'm a bit lower now and and yeah we're able to recover a bit more in between uh camps uh how high were you living in andorra tobias then i was at 1600 okay. so it was like uh kind of a silent killer actually like uh yeah they say you need to be over 2000 to feel uh an effect but still I think it was slowly killing me uh without maybe being yeah. conscious about it. so um yeah I know for sure uh altitude is working re- really well but uh yeah one, one I have to be in balance before I go in and two I also have to be prepared for it mentally like uh I can also be maybe a bit too extreme and mm. and, and push a bit too hard and then then if you're not coming in with uh, with the right amount of mental energy and motivation before three weeks on on top of a volcano, then uh, yeah. you can easily crack yourself a bit as well. But yeah, uh, yeah. So, so that's for sure something we have to discuss f- uh, for the future.
1: So you said you prepared the World Time Trial Championship really well. I mean, it was obvious in the races before Wollongong that you were coming into form, particularly in Canada, you were very strong, um, particularly in the early parts of the races. But... Talk to me a bit about some of the key ingredients. Um, I mean, we imagine, you know, you ride for a team, your Visma that's become well-known now for its attention to detail, whether it's equipment, whether it's, well, we've just been talking about altitude training. Um, There was the course itself, which was kind of unusual, a lot of corners. um, It wasn't maybe a typical world time trial course, but tell me about some of the ingredients of that preparation that you think on the day proved to be key.
0: Yeah. So, uh, physical wise, I think we, we, we trained well or, or we used every day. Well, uh, and also I went to Deutschland tour basically just to get some, some races in and some high power and, and tempos in, in my legs. Uh, and then we also went to, to Canada and there actually also, I got a role. That was more like, yeah, for sure. I think that was also the best suited role for me at that, that time, but, but also, we had a, a thought about uh, behind it as well that uh, if I would would be pooling in the races, I would also get a lot of time in the right zones for, for preparing well for the time trial. So um, are they the, the end- key efforts to be us before something like the World
1: Time Trial Championship? I mean, those high intensity efforts, whether they're I don't know five minute efforts or twenty minute efforts, are they the efforts that really make the difference?
0: yeah I think uh you for sure need the mix of both of them but uh let's say in a race that yeah if I could be in front and and pull for four or five hours and, and get like on and off in, in tempo zone uh slash threshold mm. compared to being in the belt in on and maybe being in a lower and higher zone like more polarized then uh that will give you more effect for a time trial so yeah having that in mind as well I think we be used every opportunity and every day as as well as possible uh to prepare well physically and uh and yeah i i could really feel like uh how much i were in canada i was going to australia with actually quite high confidence and uh and a top five I, I was almost certain of actually uh but uh but anything higher than that uh yeah i, I never had one thought about it so uh yeah so
1: you travelled to Australia how many days before? Can you remember when you got there?
0: Yeah. I came uh, basically exactly, uh, I think it was uh, the Tuesday before. Tuesday. And time, so was on Sunday.
1: Okay, and where um, were you staying with the Norwegian team?
0: We were staying south of uh, Geringgong. No, we were staying in Geringong, so it was south of Wollongong Okay, uh, okay. Mm, that week was basically just how we prepared There was just easy rides, getting into the daily rhythm and... and um, yeah using the days to overcome the jet lag and then i think on 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 the saturday or the friday we had uh the recon or the the closed course Mm -hmm. so we we did the recon uh we took some notes uh we went through the notes and and stuff and and prepared really well so my thoughts of the course were exactly what the coach in my car Mm -hmm. was thinking as well or so he could guide me really well throughout the course uh yeah, in line with what what I wanted to hear at the specific places. And this is also my coach. Uh my first training uh, uh or my first trainer actually I got when I was fifteen years old. What's his name? Uh Anna gunnar okay. He's now working with uh Unox. Uh so also coming back there to a really safe environment uh was uh yeah, And to a guy that's now become one of my best friends, uh, it was, was just also very nice. And uh, we know each other so well that, um, yeah,
3: it's easy to guide each other. My name is uh, Tim Hiemskerk and I'm a performance coach uh, with Team Jambo Visma. Basically, I'm part of a performance team. So there's also other people behind. But every rider in our team has two coaches. A performance coach, I always say it's a trainer coach. And then there's also the race coach. um, And yeah, that's the person uh, that is together with the rider the most times of the year. So basically, those two people are in touch with the rider... uh, most frequently he had uh, three and a half weeks of training before German tour um that was also a really good preparation uh, to race actually race but also to be in those race zones and then um, it was difficult to decide for Quebec and uh, because that was the first one of the two In, in Canada like what role is Tobias gonna have what? And normally that's yeah, uh, a, a talk between the race coaches and the performance coaches. And when, when we make the plan, uh, I give my input. Um, and yeah, I actually gave my input that um, I wasn't sure how good his shape was. We saw some good signs from uh, Deutschland Tour, and yeah, then we uh, we decided okay, but. have it really work for the world championships then yeah obviously should not be in the peloton waiting until the finale he has to do the work and actually pace himself in front of the peloton um and that that was yeah a big part he did that a big part in quebec um and then we saw wow He's even stronger than we thought. Mm. Um, And that plan changed a little bit to Montreal, but he was still very active, did a lot of work. um, And yeah, both races uh, set him up really nicely. And I also consider that um, on the physical part, um, that that was it. Because after that, I think the smart thing we did is to rest up because you're in a different time zone in Canada. You travel to Australia, you're in a different time zone again. And then taking really, really good rest um, towards the uh, time trial championships, because in the back of mind, there was not, at least in my back of mind, was not the road race. Everything was focused on the time trial. So taking really, really good rest, overcoming the jet lag and actually Within within five days, because traveling was on Tuesday, yeah. That uh, on this day it made them really fit and fresh, and and yeah, overcoming uh, the jet lag just in time.
2: So the final wave of riders, the one that contains the most big names, the reigning champion, and the other joint favorite. Yes, Tobias Foss, a top 10 in all five time trials he's ridden this season. He's the Norwegian national champion. He's a man to watch. Quite a
1: punchy start. Means business.
3: It looks like he means business.
1: Tobias, so there are some riders who, particularly time trialists, um, I mean, there's a wide spectrum of how people prepare and some, like I was at um, Grenken the other week for Filippo Ganna's hour record. And he's a guy who, has to be quite relaxed he has to be surrounded by friends he has to be listening to music he has to sort of withdraw or take the stress out of the situation whereas we've had other time trialists in the past like bradley wiggins for example used to have to get into a zone and he would sort of shut out the outside world um where do you sit in between those two approaches
0: no I, i'm probably a, a hybrid but um yeah like right before a time trial the most important thing for me is just to find peace, actually, and. I used to listen for example to to a lot of music before start to get pumped up and really get into the zone but uh I just also experienced that it's actually noise in my head uh right before a time trial. so and maybe also making it bigger than it actually is so what I really do now is just yeah I I listen to music but when my warm up start I cut the music uh I focus on my breath uh I try to go in the zone but not doing it too complicated, uh, focusing on what I want to do and, and just yeah, try to call myself on the same time as uh, getting my body prepared. Uh, then I find it a lot easier to really be sharp. When I go at the, the start ramp and and, uh, and yeah, executing all the things I planned uh, yeah, as perfect as possible. And are you nervous in a situation
1: like that? I mean, before the the World Time Trial Championship, you were on the rollers, the camera, found you and you sort of smiled at the camera you didn't look nervous you looked pretty relaxed but what were you thinking what were you feeling
0: at that moment yeah no, and yeah that's also like my um, the feeling i wouldn't have like if i come to race nervous that's because i haven't prepared well so especially i uh, like especially the day before to like go through it and and really calm myself in the way of knowing that okay now everything is set just relax, get your body prepared. And when the when the when you start go, then you need to be fully focused. But to me, there's no point of being super sharp or super focused uh 10 minutes before it start mm. I rather recover a bit then, relax, uh still don't do stupid stuff, but uh just be present actually. And then when I get on the bike, uh really focus and and say, Okay, now it's 40 minutes where I have to be sharp every second, because if you shut off for one minute even then then you can lose lose seconds mm. so um yeah I think I just came to a realization after a couple of years that uh it takes so much energy during the race so it's so so important especially for me to be super sharp during the race and mm. and then I'd rather uh, yeah be a bit more relaxed in front but still do what's necessary
1: and how soon on the day i mean maybe it was even before the the race itself but i was going to ask you how soon did you realize that you had diamonds
0: in your legs yeah i think it was quite early in the in the race like uh for sure i i never judge anything out of the the warm up uh i try to just do what i uh, my plan is and don't think like too much about how i'm feeling and and testing my body because that's often just messes up my mind uh but yeah, when when I when I got on the bike and uh, yeah, I don't look, I try also not to look too much to the power, but I have it up mm. uh, in parts where I want to restrict myself from going too hard. So did you have targets of, because I know,
1: it, you know, it was a kind of a rolling course and you talked afterwards about how you, it was important to push on the hard, to really go hard on the difficult sections and maybe save a bit of energy on the faster sections. Do you have a, target number on those sections in terms of
0: watts that you're trying to hit uh, I had one section in the world where I was going for the, for the power uh, and that was the the part uh, after the downhill uh, when we hit uh, the big road uh, so let's say the last 6-7k of, of, of the race uh, or the lap uh, there I had the goal the first or the target the first lap to, to never go over my threshold to keep it a bit uh, or holding a bit uh, again or left Uh, for the rest it's basically based on RPE, uh, like, uh, how hard it feels and, um, yeah. And that's also what I mean, like, then I felt quite quickly that, okay, I'm feeling like I'm going at the kind of intensity I need to, and the power is really high, Mm. I can see that. So, so then it was nice, but, um, yeah, that's also something I really learned the last year is that uh, time trial is actually about average speed and not average power. (laughs) Uh, so focus, uh, so easy these days to focus on the power, and and I think for sure I could have done higher power uh, in the walls or in the course and and gone way slower actually. So to to have more focus on the terrain, uh, don't look too much to the Garmin and and uh, and try to chase speed uh, is something I find really beneficial for the time. Mm. And also for my mind to to have something else to focus on, because when you always look to the Garmin, the time goes uh, quite slow. So, uh, yeah.
1: M- maybe the course helped in that respect, because it was a course where there was always
0: something happening. There was corners, there was ups, there was, there was downs. Exactly. So uh, the, uh, the time felt like it was going by re- really, really quickly. And at one side, it, it was a lot of happening all the time. So it was maybe easier to be sharp. But on the other hand, if you weren't sharp all the time, then the, you could lose yeah, a lot of seconds in every corner, so uh, it was kind of a tricky, tricky course in that way. But uh, but uh, yeah, obviously I really liked it.
2: So let's get back to the time check. Tobias Foss looking good. Oh, he's looking very good. He might be the quickest so far. Sheffield with 854.7. Here is Foss again, not outside the top ten in any of his five time trials this year. He's the fastest at the first check. Alighty, we get the checks halfway through the first lap and half through through the second lap nothing unfortunately
1: and through the first time check, I think you took uh, magnus sheffield's time you were uh, you were first at the first intermediate and um, just tell me about the communication um, how much did you want what sort of style of communication did you want, and how did it make you feel when you were here in those
0: times? yeah, I really like to hear times and um... It's really true that it can both motivate you, but also make you a bit depressed me or like uh, demotivate you. But uh, normally, I just like to know the the hard truth if it's hard. And um, yeah, for sure, when when I heard the first uh, intermediate time uh, and that I had seconds on on Sheffield, I I knew like I know the guy and I know he's a, he's a really strong rider. So I knew that okay, this is uh, going well now. And then uh, I also remember on the last. Yeah, in in the last five six k, I also heard uh, the times of Remko and and Kung uh, passing the finish line uh, or the second intermediate or something, and and I was still third or or whatever. So then I also realized that I'm actually fighting for a medal here. So uh, hearing that gives huge amount of energy for sure. Uh, but they never talked about uh, <laughs> uh, winning at all. And what is so funny is that. Uh, like I also said, the the guys in the car really knows me very well, like from a young age. So when I passed the finish line and they realized that this is probably going to be a medal race, mm. they started to cry and and was really full of emotions. And then when I won, uh, on top of that, it was just completely nuts. So uh, yeah, no, it was uh, yeah, just uh, super super nice. Yeah.
2: Second intermediate, and here comes Tobias Foss. Tobias Foss is even going to be better than that top ride we saw from Sheffield. He's even destroyed that. So Stefan Bissiger, you can start vacating that throne because Sheffield was quicker. Foss has taken 20 seconds out of the American.
1: And that's that last, well, I think it was 11 kilometers from the last time check to the finish. That was obviously key because you took a lot of time off Kung there. Um, what do you remember of those last kilometers?
0: Yeah, what i remember is that i just like this uh, intermediate time was on on the top of the climbs and mm. and i just remember i was keeping myself to the plan pushing full gas up there was quite on the limit and uh recovered a little bit the first 3 4k after that uh had had i had to because i went so hard in the climbs and then yeah and then on the last straight uh part of Six, seven k then then I yeah, I just went full and especially the last uh four and a half 5k mm. last five minutes it was just full full gas and I remembered also the <laughs> when that said uh, I don't know if you yeah, you probably know it like the, the corner Sheffield crashed on
2: I mentioned a photograph that had been circulating that is Magnus Sheffield after hitting the barriers down
0: I was also uh scratching the the fences there so I was really I was just pus- pushing full guys, both physically and also yeah, to the limit of the course. So, uh, and also I could hear my <laughs> the, the guys in the car on the radio was, you know, when you can hear the guy that's driving the car and not actually speaking in the microphone yeah, yeah. or in the intercom over your intercom, then, then, you know, they're really excited. So it's, it was, uh, yeah, I gave a lot of motivation, the last, uh, last part, and then, yeah, then you just yeah, put your head down and you go full and all this am i right in saying to be with someone else's skin suit
1: am i right in saying that it wasn't your skin suit
0: <laughs> yeah so obviously i didn't like this was all obviously a big goal for me um, but you know uh i heard the dynamics is really important uh, so the team also offers to to make or help out making a uh, a jersey or a, a suit um uh, but yeah since i wasn't going in with the biggest confidence then i thought like i, I won't bother Myself or the team was stressing with this, like I rather focus on using my energy to get well physically and yeah, it will be all all right. And uh, then I got there and and, uh, of course we get a a skin suit from uh, from the National Federation, but that's just like a completely basic skin suit. Mm. So uh, I was also sharing room with uh, Andreas Lechnesund. So he had um, uh, an old uh, skin suit. He he got a suit from, from himself. Uh, and really made specifically for himself uh, back yeah, a couple of years ago in a national uh, kit design. And he happened to have two, like one uh, that he used and one uh, spare one. So uh, yeah, he offered to, to to lend me the spare one. And, and yeah, I cho- chose to go for it because it was probably the fastest one. But uh, yeah, in the end, it was, it was a good choice. But I think also something that really helped me was going a bit away from the history of like really thinking that this speed suit is going to win me the the world championship because i think it just messes with your head like for sure those kind of things have a lot to say but in the end it's the guy on the bike and and your legs that have to have to speak for itself
2: stefan kung to tobias foss the norwegian knows it's tight this is a nervous watch, isn't it? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be looking nervous if I if I was him. The thing is one and a half kilometres from the finish. A reminder of the time that was set by Tobias Foss. 40.02.780. 51.2.
1: So you're sitting on the hot seat and while well, these images have kind of gone around the world, they're etched in everyone's memory now, um, you obviously can't believe what's happening. Um, and you make that gesture that your head's exploding. Um, take yourself and take us back to that hot seat and what you were thinking and what you were feeling.
0: Yeah, no, it was just uh, completely nuts. Like, I um, first of all, like, I understood I had a really good time. And I was, to be honest, kind of stressing to the podium, like, I want to experience this before someone else comes and knock me off the, off the hot seats. Uh, so... Yeah, I I was obviously sitting there quite a while and and then I saw, like, Kung's time.
2: Stefan Kung is firing on all cylinders right now. This rider heading to this intermediate split goes faster than Foss by 11 and a half seconds.
0: And And then I thought, like, okay, Kung has 11 seconds on me. He he will have full control of this and and Remco is four seconds behind me or something. And uh, when he hears this, then he will go full gas and, yeah, it will be third place for me. I will be super happy with that, you know, like, that will be the best day ever. So in the end, I was quite excited. But then, you know, like, as a human, I guess you also want more. So you start to get nervous, like, okay, but it's only like five, like, what is actually possible there? Yeah, then, you know, you see, like, uh, Kung especially, like, he got, was it six minutes with 5k left? Okay, that means that he has to have like uh that that amount of average speed you know like about 50 or something so it's
2: all in for the final thousand meters for stefan kung
0: the closer he got to the finish the more i saw that uh this is going to be really really Mm. close and then you know then the body just goes full adrenaline but here comes kung He's been
2: so close on many an occasion. A podium finisher before. The clock's counting down. The finish line is approaching. Here comes Stefan Kung. Is this his day? Is this his moment? I'm not sure. It's ticking away. Oh, no, he misses out. Foss hangs on sensationally.
0: You're just sitting there shaking and almost vomiting. And, like, everything is just completely nuts. And you just... You just feel like you're in a dream. Like Eduardo Affini, Edo, he was standing in the crowd. Just he couldn't believe his eyes either. And yeah, we had eye contact a lot, and it was just, yeah, it was such a cool experience for, for myself and everyone. I think. But yeah, you just feel like uh, everything was a dream. Here comes Remco. Get the clock up.
2: 300 meters to go. Ten seconds to get over. It's tight, but it's not going to happen. This is the moment that Tobias Foss is going to be crowned the world champion. Even if Paul approaches the finish line, it'll be another podium place. It'll be another medal. 9.16 seconds down. And that smile tells you. He thinks he's won it. (laughs) What a day for him. Tobias Foss of Norway on the way to being world champion. He's just sitting there thinking, is Ghana suddenly going to produce the big legs? He- and like I said
0: suddenly. to quite some journalists after, like, I really felt like I was just set on the bus mm. and they drove full gas through a lot of emotions and I just was sitting there holding on for real life and yeah, really didn't understand what was going on.
4: Filippo Gana rides
1: in and is going to be way,
4: way down.
0: Ladies and gentlemen,
2: Ghana's reign is over. We have a brand new leader. Tobias Foss is the world champion in Wollongong, Australia. It's Foss, Kung, Evenapur, with Foss, crowned world champion. Wow. Mind blow.
0: The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science.
4: Thank you very much to Science in Sport. I'm sure everybody out there knows the discount code off by heart. S-I-S-C-P 25 will get you 25% off at scienceinsport.com. They sometimes even have some more generous discounts than that at scienceinsport.com. Difficult to believe, I know, but check out scienceinsport.com to see what is available. They kept us fueled during the recent Tour de Cosse. And although it's winter here in the UK and I'm not riding quite as much outdoors, I'm not going to make the mistake I used to make a few years ago. Um, I know that I still need to pay attention to my fueling and nutrition and hydration, especially when riding indoors on the turbo trainer because you can lose a lot of fluid in an hour on the turbo, working up a bit of a sweat on the old misery machine. Um, no, it's, it's a joy really, isn't it? But often I thought, well, I don't need to... Drink anything more than water, and I don't think that's the case. Science in Sport certainly don't either because there are some products specifically designed for indoor training available at scienceinsport.com. I mentioned the Tour de Coste series there and just another brief thank you to everyone who sent some lovely feedback. We've really enjoyed reading all of your comments about the series. And I'd like to say a big thank you to Tom Wally because his production and sound design really enhanced the raw material that Simon and I recorded on the road. If you're holding off thinking it's a series about football, it really isn't. It's the story of our journey around Scotland. Yes, we do visit all of the Scottish football clubs, but it's not a football podcast. We wouldn't do that here on the Cycling Podcast, would we? Uh, Finally, before I hand back to Daniel, a word about our latest Friends of the Podcast episode, Record of Records, which went live on the Friends feed a week or so ago. Obviously, don't tell Daniel I said this, but it's an outstanding and very entertaining episode telling the story of Filippo Ganna's Our Record Attempt in Switzerland. Now, I always thought that Daniel was phobic about indoor cycling and that 60 minutes spent in a vela bowl, as he calls it, would be 59 and a half minutes too long. But evidently, that is not the case because the episode is a really deep dive into Ghana's hour record, giving the sort of historical context as well and bringing the record bang up to date. To listen to that, sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com and we will be revealing some more plans about Friends of the Podcast episodes in the coming weeks.
3: I set my alarm early and then I quickly went to the, to the washroom, uh, turned on my phone um, and then uh, when I got downstairs to, uh, to, uh, to turn on my television, uh, there was the first time point of time check on the course. And when I saw his time, I was going like, oh shit, <laughs> like he's going to go, he's going to maybe go for a medal. That made it really, really exciting. So I was home in Groningen and yeah, like it was crazy. And I was actually counting down with uh, the last few riders. And then you see Stefan Kuhn in the last uh, few kilometers and you get a bit of a feeling like, ah, oh, you know, yeah, this is going to be really close. Like, mm-hmm. And then you get a feeling in the last kilometer, I don't think he will make it. So, yeah, it's just insane. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tim, explain to me why is Tobias a good time trialist in, in, in um, all, all different, yes. you know, obviously position, physiology, and also mentally as yes. well.
3: Yes. First of all, Tobias himself, eh, if you can push yourself to the limits in in 30 minutes, 45 minutes or even up to an hour in some time trials, um, that's that's a huge quality to keep going and and maybe your brain is telling you to slow down and you just keep going to the limit. That's that's definitely a quality. Um, but also qualities that uh, also Tobias, yeah, he, uh, of course, he sits really, really well on this bike. Um, and yeah, I have to also give credits to Mathieu and our performance team. Uh, like the, the equipment, uh, the preparation, the warm up, ev- everything is thought about. So I think it's the yeah, the entire process, um, uh, putting, putting time into it in training, Um, doing time trials actually in in races Um, and yeah you've seen over the years like Tobias yeah is is a good time trialist because yeah he can just just push himself to the limits Um, we always say you put a finger between the door and uh, from second one until you finish a tt and yeah if you're able to keep that finger uh, between the door <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just keep pushing yourself and yeah it's that it's training it's uh, equipment it's yeah everything and then yeah you have to deal with uh, australia where you do know that maybe some guys have, still have to deal with jet lag um so there's the other factors around um Am I still going to do really good training uh, before the time trial? Because next week is the natural, or the world's road race. Mm. And yeah, we, we made all the decisions uh, towards the TT. T- 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 uh, I also have to say that um, I think pressure-wise, he was not the top favourite. Mm. Um, and we were going to go for the best possible result. And, um, and yeah, that's also something when you're not the top favourite favorite going into it maybe a bit more relaxed uh, compared to other guys then yeah it all came together i guess Uh, and that's maybe also the art of peaking people asked me after the tour because i also train uh, jonas they asked me what what is what is now what is now and i i joked a bit like "Ah, in the future would be nice to get a rainbow jersey with one of the riders Um, (laughs) and that happened pretty quick after the tour
2: and here it is, down under in Australia. In the world place, off-time trialing has been turned upside and down.
1: Of the UCI gold medal representing Norway,
0: Tobias Voss.
2: And Tobias Voss is the world champion. He's beaten Ghana, Evenepoel, Pogacar, Kung hater and the rest it has been a sensational ride and a richly deserved moment as norway wakes up on a sunday morning
0: to a world champion i actually remember when i got home in the evening there and uh, I put myself to bed. It was like uh, this white noise in my in my ears. Yeah, I was like... going to say, did you manage to sleep? I mean, did you sleep for the next week? <laughs> no, no, no. Like the first night, I don't think I slept until three. No, two, I think I slept. And then I woke up five or something. I went to the beach and saw the sunrise. So that was super nice. But uh, yeah, I slept nothing. So you, yeah. Did you go on your own to see
1: the sunrise? Did, was that a yeah, way...
0: I was the only one awake, so uh I thought, like, I'm not going to just lay in the bed there watching my phone for a couple of hours. So I would rather go out and.
1: So was, and was
0: that was that a moment when at least you were trying to process a little a little bit of what was happening? Yeah, exactly, and and I think that was also why I couldn't sleep because it was so much to process, and basically, then you just need a bit time for yourself. So it was uh even though I was tired, it was also nice to just go for a small walk and. Uh, and sit by the ocean a bit and uh, and reflect a bit of what what i actually managed to, to do
1: but talking about processing things I, I guess you saw as well the the now famous clip the vo- clip that went viral of remco evan coming over the
0: line <laughs> and, and saying foss <laughs> what was your reaction when you saw that no i was just funny actually like uh, i know for sure he knows my name because we were fighting or like fighting a bit but uh, we were both quite good in Algarve, so for sure he knows my name. But uh, uh, yeah, no, I I completely get him. Like I would also be super surprised if I was his was in his shoes. Uh, and I think just that clip is just completely le- legendary. So it's uh, just hilarious.
1: And to be I think we're gonna have to wind it up in a minute. But um, I just want to ask you an obvious question. How has it changed your life? We're now, well, it's a couple of months ago now, in the last couple of months, how have things changed for you? How maybe the way you
0: view your career, the way you view yourself? Yeah, I feel like uh, starting with my career, I think basically I can retire now and, and be happy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the problem is that this was never my career goal. And I'm also really happy for, for that because winning this was not like, oh, finally I did it. Now mm. I can rest and and be happy with my career. Was more like, oh, shit. Did I actually do this? Then, then everything is possible. So now I have more like the mindset that okay, if I was because this was something I would never actually dream of in my career. So now I have even more confidence and and more eager to, to chase my my proper goal. Uh, and yeah, in the way it changed me, I, I would say that's that's also the way. Like I've never more uh, never been more hungry than I than I am at the moment. And it also changed my confidence, like mm-hmm. uh, kind of a uh, confirmation for myself that okay, what you're thinking about yourself is not just your ego is actually uh, reasonable. So um, yeah, and, and other than that, uh, for sure, there's quite some some guys that, or quite some more guys that uh, want my attention or uh, or seek something from me, but but in the end of the day. Uh, my my routine and my life doesn't change and uh i'm still living alone in Andorra, and, and have <laughs> to wake up uh, and go for the, for a ride and, and do all the work so yeah that's also nice to see that you can do big stuff but in the end uh it won't affect your life too much or at least a, a, that's where i'm sitting like for sure i, I if you ask about then you probably have a different answer but <laughs> i'm also a bit happy that i'm not uh Wout's shoes
1: well you've sort of answered my last question my last question was going to be that well we talked earlier about mental approach and one thing that people sports people who have a dream come true say particularly when that dream comes true very suddenly is that um, everyone knows how to deal with failure there's an obvious recipe but dealing with success is sometimes more difficult and sometimes that people don't something that people don't necessarily prepare you for can you sort of identify with that a little bit
0: Yeah, sure, like, let's say my my dream since I was a kid uh, and started riding was always the tour, you know, like, so let's say I was in Jonas's shoes, like, and and winning the tour this year, then for sure, I would look different to that kind of success. And maybe I would probably be more depressed, realizing that, okay, it's not that big as you thought it would be or would not change or revolutionize your life that much. But like I said, this is for sure, probably going to be one of my highlights of, of, of my career. And it's gonna be super big, but uh in the end this this was this is not the dream that made me become a cyclist. And then for sure it's gonna be a different challenge if, if I ever reach that uh, that goal. Yeah.
1: Well Tobias, I think that's just about our time I haven't even had time to ask you about your your passion for farming simulator the computer game that you used to play when <laughs> you were a teenager that as well, eh? <laughs> well, Also
0: was a Euro Truck Simulator I believe you used to be a big fan of but anyway. yeah so basically I, I live like yeah, on the countryside so yeah. but, but not on a farm but I have a lot of friends that owns a farm and yeah, since I was a kid I, I always joined them after school like cleaning um, yeah, around the cows and stuff and helping with the, helping them with the work and I bloody loved Tractor track, track, track all my life so Farming Simulator kind of helps me live out my dream of one day becoming <laughs> a farmer. Uh, so <laughs> it's basically what they think. So you drive tractors, you put uh, the seed in the ground, you harvest it, uh, you can have animals, whatever. So it's uh, I find it a lot more relaxing and a lot more rewarding than playing too much Call of Duty, for example. But uh, <laughs> I know I'm also a special bloke, so that's, that's
1: fine. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm interested. I'm going to see if I can download it
0: now. Yeah,
3: I don't know. <laughs> the Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Byrne.